Praise God. Good to see you all. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. While you're turning there, I'm just say hi to the new folks. Good to see you. And to let you know that we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as I just said, we find ourselves this morning in John 17, what many consider to be the Holy of Holies of the Bible where Jesus Christ is communing with his Father. I've called this series With Jesus Behind the Veil because we are getting a peek behind the veil to the Holy of Holies where Jesus is communing with his Father. So this prayer is divided into three main parts. First of all, Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 to 5. Secondly, Jesus prays for his disciples, those that were with him, the last three and a half years, verses 6 to 19. And then number three, Jesus prays for all believers, verses 20 to 26. Now we currently are in the second main part of this prayer where Jesus is praying for his disciples. Now, I want to say one more time that at this point, Jesus is less than 12 hours from the cross. And when somebody is near death, they and they know there's only a few hours left of their lives on earth you know they don't want to talk about frivolous things like sports or the weather no they want to talk to the people on earth they love the most friends dear dear friends family about the things in life that matter most now jesus did that with his disciples earlier in the evening chapters 13 through 16 really constitute him speaking his heart to these men in preparation for him going to the cross. Now he turns to the Father and begins to pray for his disciples. And here in these verses, guys, Jesus is praying uh, for from his heart for his disciples out of a deep heart of love and concern for their welfare. In just a short time, he's going to be leaving them. Yes, he's going to the cross. Three days later, rise from the dead. Forty days after that, he will ascend back to his Father in heaven. And he will be turning the work of the kingdom over to them. We call it the Great Commission. Jesus really said in Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. So he was turning the work of the ministry over to these disciples, but he knew. He was sending them out, as he said earlier, as sheep among wolves. He knew that they were going into a hostile world, a world that was controlled by the devil a world that would be antagonistic towards the message they would preach, a world that at one point would try to stuff, to uh, snuff out the light, uh, as Satan, as the god of this world, would want the light extinguished. So this section, guys, contains what Jesus was most concerned about. Now, as I was telling first service, as we read John 17, many Christians have a tendency to kind of go right through it, and not really think too much about it. We're getting a glimpse into the heart of Jesus that we don't get anywhere else in the Gospels. This is what was really on his heart the night before the cross. He wasn't worried about himself. He was worried about his disciples. And so he's pouring his heart out to the Father, things that he was most burdened about for them, for us, right? I've reworked my excuse me, I reworked my outline a little to make it a little simpler. And so Jesus' prayer for his disciples is made up of three things. 
First of all, that the Father would give grace to them so that their lives would bring Jesus glory, verses 9 and 10. That the Father would keep them, would keep them, verses 11 to 13. And that the Father would sanctify them, verses 14 to 19. Now, we've already looked at the first one a couple weeks ago, um, that their lives would bring glory to Jesus. Let me read verses 9 and 10 again, where Jesus said, Father, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And listen, I am glorified in them. How is Jesus glorified in us who are his disciples? Four ways. We've already looked at these. I'll just fire them out to you. Jesus is glorified in us, first of all, by saving us, and then by us living a transformed life. Look, as we have said before, you can go out into this world, you're going to have a lot of people, as you share the gospel, argue with your doctrine. They can argue with your doctrine all day long. They can't argue with a changed life. And that's the point we're making here. A changed life brings glory to Jesus because only he has the power to truly to save and transform a life. We, he gets glory when we go out and live as lights in this dark world. Number two, Jesus is glorified in us by our trusting him in this life. A lot of Christians don't really trust the Lord. They're still wringing their hands in worry over every crisis, over every need, over every adversity. We are not only saved by faith, we are to what? The just shall live by faith. It brings the Lord glory and honor when the world looks at us and those that were Christians and we're going through some very difficult trial. But we have peace, even joy, because we've given it to the Lord and he's promised to take care of us. Number three, Jesus is glorified in us when we live a holy life. And this isn't about a big list of do's and don'ts like a lot of churches will give to people. The word holy simply means to draw away from something, the world, and draw close to God in the process. And the closer you draw to God, the more you're going to become like the Lord. The more you're going to have His heart, the more you're going to love the things He loves and hates the things He he hates. Augustine, I think, said it well many years ago. He said, look, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and do whatever you want. Because he knew. You love God that much, you will only do the things that honors him, the things he delights in. And number four, Jesus is glorified in us by our witness of him to this world. As we represent God properly to this world, and I'm thinking primarily the love of God, as we show this world, this fallen world, um, where the love of many, Jesus said, the closer we got to his return, would grow cold. We're seeing it. We're seeing it. All you can do is watch the news. The love of many is growing cold. And then we come filled with the Holy Spirit in showing people the love of God, what God is really like. It brings some honor and glory. People are drawn to that kind of love because they know nothing of it. You can't manufacture God's love. It's a total fruit of the Spirit. You can't fake it. You can't make it. It's got to be in us. And the only way it's in us is when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Romans 5, 5, at that moment, the Holy Spirit moves in and he pours God's agape love into us. It's there. We don't have to use it. Many times we don't. 
but it's there if we want to use it. And the closer you draw to Jesus, the more you will want to love others with his love. All right. So he first of all prayed that the lives of his disciples would bring him glory. Number two, he prayed that they would be kept by the Father. Verse 11, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I have come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, from the devil. Guys, Jesus prayed to his father that he would keep his disciples all of us, obviously, from the devil falls into four basic requests. That he would keep his disciples. Father, keep them from damnation. Keep them from death. Number three, keep them from division. And number four, keep them from defilement. We will work our way through those four. We'll look at the first two today. Last time we met, we started looking at how God keeps us the idea is keeps us from damnation, from hell, by keeping us, listen, eternally secure in Christ. First of all, Jesus prayed that his father would keep his disciples from damnation. Again, verses 11 and 12. I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, my true disciples. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name. Those whom you have given me, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except, interesting word, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, let me clarify something so that you don't have any misunderstanding here. Something that's very important. When Jesus said that none of his disciples was lost except Judas whom he called the son of perdition, he wasn't saying that Judas at one time was saved, but Jesus couldn't hang on to him. That Judas kind of slipped through his fingers before Jesus could bring him all the way to glory. And now he's lost. Now he's on his way to hell because Jesus couldn't hold on to him. First of all, we know that that is absolutely not what Jesus was referring to. How do we know that? Because God's word tells us that. I'll have you just write these down. We'll look at a bunch of scriptures. I'll have you turn to them, but these we've studied in the past, all right? How do we know this wasn't the case that Judas was saved and Jesus just kind of, you know, let him slip between his fingers and he wound up being lost going to hell? John 10 verses 27 and 8, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall uh, anyone snatch them out of my hand i give to them eternal life by its very def definition ha has to be life for eternity never-ending life eternal life john 6 verse 6 uh, verse 39 where jesus said this is the will of him who sent me that i should lose 10 percent." that's not bad I mean, really, right? 
No. He said that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. So Jesus never loses any who are given to him. Jesus never loses any who are truly saved. So what's going on with Judas? Well, the term son of perdition literally means son of hell. Son of hell. In other words, Judas was never a child of God. He was never saved. He was always a child of hell. He was always lost. We know this for sure from what Jesus said about Judas earlier in John's gospel. Uh, John 6, you might want to turn to this. John 6. And let's start with verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? That's Jesus' way of saying, and one of you is a child of hell. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For it was he, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Notice how the Lord, we're going to see this again in a moment, connects the fact that Judas was a son of hell with his betrayal. He betrayed Christ because he was a son of hell. Peter denied the Lord. Peter didn't betray the Lord. Peter was a true disciple. We can all blow it. We can all in a moment of weakness maybe not claim to be a Christian. We can deny Jesus in some way. We would never as true believers uh, uh, betray him or renounce our faith once and for all. Only unbelievers masquerading as Christians do that. Judas was one of those. John 13. Let's start with verse 10. Jesus here is talking primarily to Peter, but to all those in the upper room that night. He who was bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Now, Jesus is using something that was common knowledge to all the people living in that culture. In the morning, they would bathe. The Greek word luo. They would take a, a complete bath. But then as they walked through the day uh, on dirt roads with open sandals, their feet would get dirty. When they would go into somebody's house to visit or to have a meal, it was customary as just a sign of courtesy for the owner of the house, if he was a wealthy man, to provide a servant to wash his guest's feet. Or if he didn't have a servant, the owner uh, the, 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 of the, ho the owner of the house who was the host would wash his guest's feet or at very least provide a basin, some water, a pitcher, and a towel that they could wash their own feet. Jesus picked up on that and is saying, look, and I'm going to paraphrase, when you are saved, truly saved, you are washed completely of your sins. As you walk through this defiled world, you're going to pick up some defilement. What do you do? You wash, you repent, you get into the Word. Ephesians 5.26, you bathe in the water of the Word, right? It cleanses out the dirty jokes you heard that day or the images as you were on your way to work on billboards and garbage. Uh, this is a, a defiling place. As we walk through, we're going to pick up some of the dirt. Come home, take a bath. But we don't need to be saved all over again. We just need to bring our hearts to the Lord, maybe in ways that we blew it, didn't walk as cleanly as we should have, you get clean. But you don't have to be saved all over again. But here Jesus said, look, you're all clean. 
Peter says, give me a bath, Lord. I, you know, uh, you're already clean, Peter. You're all clean, except for one of you. One of you is not clean. One of you is not saved. Speaking to Judas, the one who would betray him. Guys, if you take a concordance and look up the word perdition in the New Testament, as I did, here's a sampling of what you'll find, just so you get a flavor of, so we're under no misunderstandings with regard to Jesus calling Judas a son of perdition, right? In Philippians 1, uh, Philippians 1.28, Paul talks about us um, living in such a way that we honor the Lord with our lives, okay? Um, and that we're not in any way terrified by our adversaries. It's a hostile world out there. And we go out there to serve Christ and be a light, and we're going to get attacked, all right? But don't be terrified, because when you're persecuted, I'm paraphrasing what Paul is saying, when you're persecuted for your faith and for being a witness for Jesus, understand this, it's proof of the fact that those who persecute you, they're of perdition, they're going to hell, and those that are being persecuted, well, as Paul said, um, that your salvation is of God. You're true children of God. Because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when people criticize you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for so they also persecuted the true prophets who were before you. It just shows you're on the right team, right? Jesus, if the world loves you, if you go out into the world and the world loves you, that's bad. Because the world only loves those that belong to the world. Right, John 15? But I've called you out of the world. By the way, that's what holy means. To call you out of the world to be his own special people. I've called you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you and persecutes you. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. It's a good one. Paul said, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's the only other place in the New Testament where somebody is called a son of perdition. Judas and this character who we know as who? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. Now we know the Antichrist is never going to be one who gets saved and is lost. He's always been, or always will be, son of perdition, just like Judas. I think Hebrews 10, verse 39, I'll give you one more, uh, really is has Judas in mind. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, like Judas, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. There are those who come to church and get to the very border of salvation, but never cross over. They never really give their heart to Christ. Eventually, they start moving away, drawing back into the world, but ultimately to hell. Only those who have saving faith have crossed over. We're truly born again. And as Peter said, who spoke for all of us, when Jesus said, when a bunch of his disciples walked away, would-be disciples, and followed him no more, are you also going to leave, he said to the twelve? And Peter said, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. That's the heart of a true Christian. Going forward is not always easy, but drawing backwards is not even an issue. Furthermore, guys, 
Not only did Jesus say that Judas was lost because he was never saved, very important point, he went on to tell us that Judas' life was foretold or prophesied about in Scripture, which would have been, which be, would be in our Old Testament, our Old Testament. Look at verse 12 again, where Jesus says, Those whom you gave me, Father, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Listen, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. What Scripture? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess because earlier in the evening, when they were still in the upper room, we read in John 13, verse 18, talking about not all of them are clean, that contact we just talked about. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And there Jesus is quoting from Psalm 41, verse 9, a psalm that David wrote, really, out of his own life experience, he had a very close friend, confidant, and advisor in his life at one point, a man by the name of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, for reasons we don't have time to get in, into right now, turned on David at one point and took up with David's son Absalom, who was leading a rebellion against his father to overthrow David and become the king of Israel. And David was heartbroken. And he wrote in Psalm 41 about his relationship with Ahithophel, a good friend. We walked together to the house of the Lord. We, we, you know, we worshiped together. We took sweet counsel together. We encouraged each other and so on. But the one per person who ate my bread, ate at my table, he has lifted up his heel against me. When David wrote those words, he probably didn't understand he was also prophesying about someone else, Jesus Christ, who would have a close friend, an apostle, Judas Iscariot, who would eventually turn against him and uh, betray him. But also in Psalm 109, verse 8, you don't have to turn to these, I just want to get you a, give you a flavor of what we're talking about. In, in Psalm 109, verse 8, Judas' death was prophesied, and the psalmist said, and somebody else is to take his office, all right? Now, we know that was talking about Judas there, because in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, when the apostles uh, feel they need to replace Judas, he's gone, he hung himself, right? He's dead. They quoted from this psalm, and, which says, let his days be few, and let another take his his office, and they rightly interpreted that to be a prophecy about Judas, and so they felt they needed to kind of hurry up and replace Judas. So they cast lots. The lot fell, a lot fell on, on Matthias. He was numbered with the 12, and that was about the last time you ever heard of the guy. I think they rushed it. Look, even though God made a promise here he was going to replace Judas, God's promises are still subject to God's timing, Right? You know, I mean, for everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. God makes you a promise in the scriptures. You could take it to the bank, but it still falls under uh, God's sovereign timing. Very important, right? We just can't, you know, go out and claim it and try to make, you know, Mary, Gabriel, comes to Mary. You're going to be the mother of the Messiah, virgin birth, mother of the Messiah. What did she do? Try to run out and make it happen? 
How would that work? No, she prayed and pondered these things in her heart, right? God makes you a promise. Sometimes all you can do is thank him, praise him, ponder it in your heart, wait for God's timing. Um, now, I personally think they rushed the timing of God. I mean, I, I believe God had a replacement. We, we know he did. And his name was Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Interesting, because here comes Paul eventually says, you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. I'm an apostle born out of due time, due season. I wasn't with the 12th. He took a lot of heat for that from his critics. Hey, he's not a real apostle. He wasn't with the 12th. No, he wasn't. But scripture indicates another would take Judas's place. We know Judas. And that would be, I believe, Paul the apostle. Anyways. I just want to bring all this out because there are those Christians who think that Judas was once saved but lost his salvation. I hope we have proven that that's not the case. Listen, Judas was back then and will forever remain a son of hell. Jesus said he went to his own place. The Greek indicates the place that has always been his home, his place, right? Now, guys, this takes us back, though, to uh, what we studied a couple weeks ago. Last Sunday was Resurrection Sunday. Praise the Lord. But before that, we were in John 17, and we were looking at this idea, how that Jesus prayed the Father would keep his disciples, and first and foremost, would keep them secure in their salvation, so that they would never see hell would never see hell. As we studied last time, when Jesus brought this request to his father, he um, wanted to make sure that the father would always keep us safe and secure. That we would never come into condemnation or hell. We call this eternal security. Let me just say this. If you're a true believer here in Christ, I don't know your hearts. I'm not, I'm not saying anything against anybody in particular. I mean, you know, the Bible says God knows who his people are, right? The firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. We don't always know. Sometimes, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Uh, who can know it? God says, I know the heart, but not even we know our own hearts at times. That's why Scripture says, look, Examine yourself to make sure you're really saved. You don't want to assume anything. Stand before Jesus on the day of judgment. And like Jesus said in Matthew 7, uh, hear him say, I never knew you depart from me. Into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, right? So you don't get a second chance when you stand before Jesus. Today is the day when you need to examine yourself. And we looked at this uh, a couple weeks ago. We said, look, those people who are genuinely saved, they are being kept by God because they have been, listened sealed with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ is making intercession for them, for us, right now as we speak. Jesus Christ is, first of all, in heaven making intercession for the people of God. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the devil is our adversary. 
Uh, in the New Testament, the word used of the devil is uh, he is the attorney for pro the prosecution. 1 John 2.1 Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, propitiation is a fancy Greek word that simply means uh, God is satisfied. Je Jesus satisfied God's righteous requirements. He paid for our sin through his own blood. This has allowed God to show us mercy, to reach out to us with salvation. Jesus Christ, though, has saved us, and now when we do blow it, he stands, you know, the devil steps forward to the throne of God and accuses us to the Father, attorney for the prosecution, but Jesus steps forward as the, our attorney for the defense, what the Greek word actually says, and he defends us. Father, don't listen to that charge. I've already paid for those sins. Father, case dismissed. Take a hike, Satan. Jesus is our intercessor. So we know that he will save us, Hebrews 7.25, to the uttermost, it says. All the way to glory. All the way to the end. We don't get saved for a while and then we get lost. If he saves us, you know, we will be glorified. If we're, you know, predestined and chosen and justified, we will be glorified, right? We talked about Romans 8, uh, verse... Uh, 28, 29, that, you know, just uh, it, it, very important. But last time we said that in Ephesians, Paul talked about how that when we believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we were saved, and then we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We said back a couple weeks ago that seals in those days were used for different purposes. But two of the most common ones were that they were used to signify ownership and security. When a merchant went somewhere and bought some, some merchandise, paid for it, he would put his signet ring, uh, press it into some substance that would, would harden and form and become his signature in a sense. His proof that that merchandise belonged to him. He was the owner of that property. God sealed us with his Holy Spirit the moment we gave our heart to Christ. Spoke of ownership but also security. Because in those days when they wanted to secure something like they wanted to secure Jesus' tomb uh, so that the disciples wouldn't come and try to steal the body and say he had risen, uh, they quickly sealed it and they put the seal of Rome upon the tomb, which spoke of security. Nobody could break that seal unless it was Caesar himself. To break it meant you had forfeited your life. Nobody broke a seal like that, a seal of Rome, um, without doing it under the pain of death. All right? So ownership and security. Um, turn to Romans 8 quickly. This is one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament that proves the absolute eternal security of believers in Christ. We looked at it last time, but let me just touch on it briefly again. A chapter, Romans 8, that starts with no condemnation and ends with no separation. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation, no hell, to those who are in Christ Jesus. Only truly saved people are in Christ. If you're in Christ, 
you will never go to hell. You'll never see condemnation. Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things that come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last time we met, we said, listen, are you a created thing here this morning? I'm pretty sure we're all created things. We're all made by God, right? Well, if that's the case, then not even you can separate yourself from Christ. Not even you. Not that you would want to. But not even you can separate yourself from Christ and go to hell. So guys, the first request that Jesus made to his father on his disciples' behalf was that the father would keep them, listen, eternally secure, forever safe from eternal damnation in hell. That's true. However, I see something else here, something that's not quite as obvious as you study the text, okay? Yes, the Lord Jesus prayed that the father would keep his disciples from eternal death in hell. But also, listen, that he would protect, uh, that they would be protected from the devil who wants to kill us and remove us from the earth so that we're no longer a threat to his kingdom. Yes, eternal death in hell is obviously in view. But I do see in these verses that Jesus is asking the Father to save his disciples from the devil's attacks who wants to kill them so that they don't die an untimely premature death and not finish the work that God is giving them to do. Hold on to that thought. Why do I think this way? Well, because of what Jesus goes on to say on the subject. First of all, in verse 15, he makes it clear the devil's after us. All right? If he wasn't, Jesus wouldn't have to pray for protection for his disciples. But in verse 15, I do not pray that you, Father, should take them out of the world, my disciples, but that you should keep them from the evil one, from Satan, who wants to kill them. Again, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Uh, the devil wouldn't dare try to kill Jesus' disciples when he was with them physically. But now he's leaving. He's asking the Father to take over the protection of his disciples. When I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now again, obviously in view there is eternal separation from God or uh, going to hell. Uh, we are protected from that. But when you get into chapter 18, now the temple soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the garden. And as we're going to study this, you realize that Jesus Christ was not the victim. He was in charge. How do I know that? Because he's giving commands to these soldiers. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I'm he. Boom. They all fell over like bowling pins. Well, actually, what he said is, I am. The he's in italics, isn't it? That was the name of God. There's power in that name, isn't there? So they picked themselves up, dusted themselves off. Verse 8 of John 18. Who are you looking for? Well, verse 7. Jesus of Nazareth, probably a little more timid this time. Verse 8, 
Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these other disciples who are with him that night, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I lost none. The idea was that if they would have arrested Jesus and the disciples, they were going to kill Jesus. That was a given. Probably would have killed his disciples. By Jesus intervening, he was saying, look, you've come here for me. Those that sent you want to kill me. Leave these others go. Commanding them. He was interceding for their physical lives. Now I bring this all up to reinforce the principle of God's sovereignty over our lives and how he has promised us in his word that until God is done with us, until we finish our ministries God has given us, listen, we are invincible, we are indestructible. How do I know this? Because there are several scriptures where it's stated directly and many others that it's implied. I'll just have you turn to Revelation 11 quickly. When the rapture happens, now we don't know when it's going to happen, but when it does happen, every single believer on the face of the earth is going to be gone. God never leaves himself without a witness, without a light. So he quickly sends two witnesses. I think they're Moses and Elijah. You can go online and listen to our Revelation 11 study to find out why I think that. But verse 3, God says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days in sackcloth. Verse 5, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. No one's going to be able to stop them from fulfilling the work God gave them to do, or God will give them to do. They're still yet future. No one is going to be able to stop them from fulfilling the ministry God has called them to is the idea. Um, so if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all kinds of plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, that's a key phrase, the beast, the Antichrist, that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So these guys are indestructible. They will be indestructible until they have finished their mission, their ministry for God. Now listen, Jesus said earlier in John 17, verse 4, when he was praying for himself, he said, Father, I've glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do. There were other places in the Gospels where Jesus said basically that no one can hurt him, take his life, until he had finished the work the Father gave him to do. You say, well, that's Jesus, though. But I believe it applies to all God's servants. Remember Paul was about to be executed in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He writes one final uh, letter to a young pastor named Timothy. 
And in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul made this statement. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. My death is coming. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That's Paul's way of saying that he had finished his earthly ministry, the one given to him by God. I have kept the faith. Nobody could have taken Paul's life until he had finished the work. Now listen, tradition says that it was Emperor Domitian who sentenced the Apostle John himself to be boiled in oil for proclaiming Jesus as Lord. But history tells us that when they threw John into this pot of boiling oil, it had no effect on him. It had no effect on him. Because John was not finished doing what God had for him to do. And until he was done, again, he was indestructible. So Domitian ordered John to be sent to the Isle of Patmos, uh, which is off the coast of Asia Minor. Um, it's really nothing more than a rock that juts out of the Aegean Sea, a penal colony in those days where people were sent to basically die. And so John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. And... Um, while on that island, alone, forsaken, feeling isolated, it was there that Jesus Christ visited John and gave to him the greatest revelation in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Let me just say as a side note, sometimes when we're feeling alone, forsaken, maybe uh, we're not on the literal Isle of Patmos, but we're on our own personal allegorical Patmos, a place of isolation, feeling alone, broken, um, desperate, God-forsaken. We're prone to think that God has abandoned us, that maybe this is it, God's done with me. What a way to go, what a way to die. I'm wondering if John felt that way. But God wasn't through with John. In fact, God allowed the isolation in John's life for the purpose of Revelation. Let me just say this. We are so busy. We're a lot busier than John ever was, I'm sure. Our lives have shifted into such high gear that when God wants to talk to us, oftentimes in that still small voice, we're so, the noise of our lives drowns out the voice of God. So what does God have to do? Sometimes he will put us in a place of isolation. What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe you'll be in a hospital bed uh, dealing with some sickness, wondering why God would have allowed you to be in this situation. But it's in this situation you have a lot of time to think and to pray. Meditate on God. And Jesus will come to you in a way you never thought possible. Not because he's done with you, but because he wants to use you in greater ways. But he's got to get your attention. He's got things he wants to tell you and share with you. And your walk has to be deepened with him if he's going to use you in greater ways. I don't know if some of you hear this is exactly what you're feeling. Maybe you find yourself in a similar place. Jesus wants to come to you, to show you. Come to you in a way you never thought possible, to bring revival to your heart and revelation to your life so that he can use you in greater ways. Well, Domitian died in 96 AD, and John was allowed to return to, to uh, Ephesus, um, where he lived the remainder of his life and was buried. While he was there in semi-retirement, God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
had John Penn write, <laughs> here you go, Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. God was not finished with John. And even though John was very elderly, he still had a ministry for John to fulfill. And until that ministry was finished, John was Superman. Uh, invulnerable. But again, until God's done with us, we are indestructible. Very important point. And so Jesus prayed for his disciples, guys, that the Father wouldn't let them be killed by the devil, by, wouldn't let them or us be killed by the devil until we had finished or we finish our ministries for God, that until then we would be indestructible. Now, here's what you're thinking. Okay. And I'm not a mind reader, it's just obvious. Yes, but how do I know when God's finished with me so that I'm no longer indestructible? See, that's the thing. Okay, I get your point. And I believe until God's done with me, I am indestructible. I'm worried about when God's done with me. And I'm no longer indestructible. How do I know when that day's coming? Can I give you a short answer to that that may not satisfy you? How do you know when God's done with you so you're no longer indestructible? When you die. I wish I had a better answer for that. How do you know when the work of God that God has given you is through? When he takes you home. Because he, I don't believe, he's going to leave you or me on this planet a second longer than he has to. Because precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. He wants us with him. But we have to finish the work. And when the last thing for God is done, he says, time to come home. And he can't wait. Why, when he sees me, will he say, I, I couldn't wait? That is a, that is a mystery. Uh, that baffles me. So, But what do we do in the meantime? We don't know how many days we have here on the earth. Uh, what do we do in the meantime? Well, we do what Moses prayed. Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, you read that and go, but Lord, I don't know how many days I've got. How can I number my days? Oh, that's obvious. We don't. But let me put it in a, a way that I believe in our vernacular what Moses was really saying, right? So, Lord, because I don't know how many days I have here on the earth, give me the grace to make every day count. Teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom says, Lord, give me grace to make every day count so I don't miss any opportunities to serve you. How do we do that? Again, by walking with purpose and not wasting our opportunities to be used by God. I'll give you one more scripture. We'll close. Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 17. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity to serve God, to be used by Jesus Christ in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly. In other words, don't waste time, but understand what, what the Lord wants you to do. In other words, seek Him and live with eternity in your heart. 
live with eternal purpose. Let me just say this, and we'll close. We can't add any days to our lives. I believe God has got a set number of days He has ordained for every one of us. Now, those days will be sufficient to do all the work God's called us to do. Even giving us a little time to mess up. Backslide, you know, get preoccupied with some goofy hobby, take us away, and then we get back. He gives us enough time to get everything done He has ordained that we do for Him. The only way we will not do get everything done that God has given us to do is if, first of all, we don't care about serving the Lord. There's a lot of Christians who don't really serve God because they really don't care. They're very carnal. They want to live to build their kingdom on earth still and not in heaven. But then there's others who will cut their lives short. Now, we can't add to the number of days God's ordained for our lives, but we can sure subtract a number of them. How? Well, by engaging in reckless sinful behavior. I mean, you know, if you're into drugs or you're a heavy smoker or a drinker, these things can subtract days from your life. And that's why we should never want to be involved in those things. We want, should want to pray, Lord, give me grace to walk in freedom from these things so that I never waste any time or have my time on earth cut short that I can't fulfill everything you've called me to do. What did Jesus say? Seek to have an abundant entry into the kingdom of heaven. And that's only possible if we are serious about using our days to serve the Lord. May God give us the grace to do that. We will continue next time uh, in John 17. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your, your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are such a gracious God. Lord, and you do keep us. You watch over us. You protect us. Give us grace, Lord, to walk in the light of your truth, to always report for duty and never to waste any time that we could, could use for your glory. And, Lord, we just ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.